This is hell. With my apologies, I have a horrible cold today because that's what happens when you visit family out of state for a holiday weekend. The planet's on fire. And yes, this is hell. But some people are actually trying to fight that fire with fire, if you will. But if you are fighting a climate climate changed climate change fueled global worldwide fire, it's going to take a conflagration of similar intensity and scale to make even the slightest dent in the engines of our self-destruction. As they grind away at an increasingly vulnerable environment, chewing through what we once knew as nature and spitting it out, our relationship with the natural world is threatened, if not lost. As today's guest writes, psychologists have come up with the term solastalgia, so like nostalgia, except solastalgia, for the feeling that occurs with the disappearance of what's perceived as the normal, stable, healthy, natural world. The Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht coined the term. He identifies it as a suffering of the loss of solace, quote, a deep emotional response to the desolation of a loved home environment. What we all need seemingly now more than ever is comfort in this time of great distress, sadness, and disappointment, evidenced by an epidemic of loneliness, depression, and record numbers of suicides. But for many, those places we recognize, we associate with comfort and solace are changing into something unrecognizable or disappearing entirely. As reported earlier this month, there's yet another new study out that is not good news for the planet or us, the people living on it. The new report is co-authored by James Hansen, the scientist widely credited with being the first to publicly sound the alarm on the climate crisis, climate crisis in the 1980s. This latest research states we are in the early phase of a climate emergency. There's a surge of heat already in the pipeline and it will rapidly push global temperatures beyond what has been predicted, resulting in warnings and warming that exceeds 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the 2020s and above 2 degrees Celsius before 2050. As CNN reported, the findings add to a slew of recent research that concludes the world is hurtling towards 1.5 degrees, a threshold beyond which the impacts of climate change, including extreme heat, drought, and floods, will become significantly harder for humans to adapt to. And some are already unwilling to adapt. Sure, there are denialists, but then there's the people who, far from denying global heating, They've accepted the reality and are certain they know exactly what to do about it. Depending on your perspective, they are either heroes or eco-terrorists. Returning to This Is Hell Today, journalist and author Christopher Ketchum wrote the Harper's Magazine article, The Machine Breaker, Inside the Mind of an Eco-Terrorist. Christopher writes at Denatured. His journalism not-for-profit, you can find Denatured and support Chris's writing at Christopher Ketchum 
Radio.com. This is Chris's third appearance on the show in 2023. He was on in May to talk about his Truth Dig article, The Green Growth Delusion, Advocates of Green Growth Promise a Painless Transition to a Post-Carbon Future. But what if the limits of renewable energy require sacrificing consumption as a way of life? That writing is part of Green Tinted Glasses, a dig series curated by Chris that explores the limits of the renewable energy transition, the possibility of a major downshift in consumption is looming, and the implications for human progress and flourishing. Chris was also on the show back in January when we talked to him about an article at The Intercept he co-wrote with Charles Kamenoff. The shutdown of luxury emissions should be at the center of climate revolt. Climate disorder won't be remedied through an orderly march of green energy. The world must also reign in consumption. That interview on luxury emissions has been suggested by listeners as one of their favorite interviews of 2023. Tune in throughout December next month during our end-of-year annual series featuring the best conversations of the year as selected by listeners of This Is Hell, as well as by our very own staff members. We want to know what your favorite interviews of this year, 2023, were, who your favorite guests were, and if we play your suggested interview, we'll thank you personally on air during our upcoming Best of 2023 set of shows. You can email us your favorite or favorites, make as many suggestions as you'd like, you can send them to chuck at thisishell.com, or you can offer your suggestions via Facebook or comment in our Facebook post on the subject at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or at the announcement on our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, or in our Discord community, or on X at This Is Hell Radio, or at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to know who you learned from the most, what conversations you can't st- stop thinking about, you can't stop talking to your friends about, the discussions here on This Is Hell that had the biggest impact on the way you view the world. Tell us who were your favorite guests, what were your favorite interviews, and together with you, we can program the best of 2023, which is a great time of year to introduce your family and friends to the show by turning them on to the year's very best of This Is Hell. Again, if we play your suggestion, we will thank you personally on air. You can follow Christopher on Twitter at CKetchumWild. That's C-K-E-T-C-H-A-M, followed by the word wild. Producing is Chris Coolfan. How are you, Chris? How was your weekend? It was uh, very, very good. We actually did a Black Friday march by the Water Tower for Freeing Palestine, so that was fantastic. Really? Did you have a good turnout? Uh, it was a pretty. It was cold as heck, but a very, very solid turnout. And uh, we ended up blocking the doors, or just kind of doing a BDS thing in front of Victoria's Secret and Starbucks, the star, the fancy Starbucks reserve place. Right. Yeah. So we that we did a BDS blockade of that. It wasn't like a hardcore blockade. It was a lot blockade, but like you go into the Starbucks with the Victoria's Secret by pantyhose or something, then basically you'll notice you're you'll know you're supporting genocide from either the cup of coffee or the underwear that you're buying. So especially if you're buying the pantyhose from Starbucks, then you know you're <laughs> definitely supporting genocide. Uh, my holiday weekend was fantastic. Other than the annual cognitive dissonance of giving thanks on a day when others mourn their culture's genocide. A genocide conducted by people who look a lot like me. And for some perverted reason, we decided to give thanks instead of, at the very least, saying, sorry, as we benefit from that mass killing, whether our direct ancestors were 
involved in this specific genocide or not. Who knows? Maybe your ancestors were involved in some other mass slaughter of human beings. After all, there were lots of those kinds of crimes against humanity throughout co colonialism. But yeah, great extended weekend with family. And I will tell you a bit more about that after our conversation with Chris Ketchum on so-called eco-terrorism. Chris, cool fan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? What are you not looking forward to this holiday season? And I think I've been talking about that a lot on Patreon lately, and I'm going to be doing it again later this week. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at the same places. You can tell us your favorite guests and interviews of 2023 at our Facebook page or our Facebook group, Welcome to Hellhole, Twitter, Patreon, Discord, via email, whatever. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Chris has this week's hangover cure, and I'm very curious if he figured out how to pronounce this week's hangover cure, because I did not. I practiced a few times Did you? All right. Um, well, this week's hangover cure is an antioxidant called glutathione. Oh, look at that. Hey, now. USA Today posts an article by Sky Rogers with the headline, Holiday Helper, Hangover Cures, and Other Self-Care Remedies for the Holiday Season. Avoid the day-after effects of partying too hard. Rogers quotes Amanda Beaver, a wellness dietitian at Houston Methodist Hospital, who explains, One tool our body uses to help detoxify alcohol is an antioxidant called glutathione which can become depleted after a night of drinking. Rogers adds that to replenish your glutathione levels, load up on quality protein from eggs, chicken, salmon, yogurt, lentils, or oatmeal, along with other vitamin C-rich foods like strawberries, tomatoes, and raspberries. For those not feeling up for solid foods, a smoothie always works. Rogers then cites beaver advertising, make it fruit, sorry, Make a fruit smoothie with frozen banana. Make a fruit smoothie with frozen berries, bananas, Greek yogurt, nut butter, and almond milk. The resulting smoothie will be full of antioxidants, which help mitigate the inflammatory effects of alcohol. That makes this week's hangover cure an antioxidant-like glutathione. Wow, good one. Coming up, what is and who becomes a so-called eco-terrorist? Chris will have our Patreon subscribers answers to this week's question from hell, as well as those people who have posted in our Discord community. We'll tell you what happened on last week's bonus Patreon podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We will share with you uh, who the rest of this week's guests will be. And Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, has an all new past inside the present when he offers the historical context of the past to help us have a better understanding of the present. Chris, what is Sebastian up to during this week's past inside the present? Sebastian attempts to clarify what a settler colonialism is and where that term can be applied. 
I'm really looking forward to that because that was one of the topics that came up in our conversation last week with Susan Neiman. Susan said that she didn't think that settler colonialism is a term that fairly applies to Israel. And then she cited the history of Germany, I believe, in Gabon and in Namibia and how those are far better examples of what settler colonialism are or is. So we'll be hearing from Sebastian on that a little bit later. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And a dissenting opinion universally would be supporting terrorism of any kind. But what happens when the person who is labeled a terrorist is not attempting to harm anyone? Not a soul. From their perspective, what if they believe they are in fact saving us? Saving all our souls? And if we all would only follow their lead, we might be able to help save the planet too our guest today returning to this is hell is journalist and author christopher ketchum who wrote the harper's magazine article the machine breaker inside the mind of an eco-terrorist christopher writes that denatured his journalism not for profit you can find denatured and support chris's writing at ChristopherKetchum.com, and you can follow Christopher on Twitter at C. Ketchum Wild. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Chris. Howdy. Good Gr- to be here. Always great to have you on the show, sir. You start by writing in the summer of 2016, a 57-year-old Texan named Stephen McRae drove east out of the rainforest of Oregon and into the vast expanse of the Great Basin. His plan was to commit sabotage. First up was a coal-burning power plant near Carlin, Nevada, 242-megawatt facility owned by the Newmont Corporation that existed to serve two nearby gold mines, also owned by Newmont. McRae hated coal-burning power plants with a passion, but even more, he hated gold mines. Did McRae ever mention to you any concerns he might have had in blowing up a power plant uh, any kind of collateral damage, if you will, that would be uh, would affect other people and the public, people who are just innocent <laughs> civilians who are not involved in this. Did he ever express to you how much he worked to make it so innocent civilians wouldn't be harmed in any way? Oh, I think he thought about it quite a lot. I think it worried him. I think um, he was kind of divided on the issue because there were times when I would speak to him um, well, before he got arrested where he was like, well, sometimes you got to break some, you know, break some eggs to make an omelet, that kind of thing, you know, using his Texan uh, sort of uh, his Texan way of, uh, of uh, I don't know, downplaying what that breaking of eggs might be, the actual harming of people. On the other hand, I listened to the FBI tapes um, that were, you know, 22 hours of recordings. And on those tapes, there are many times where he said, you know, I'm not, I don't want to harm anybody. I don't want to cause any um, harm to life. This is about destroying the machines that are destroying Mother Earth. Um, Well, you know, you can look at that uh from the big picture and say well hey billions of people depend on the steady functioning of machines for their survival so if you take out the machines 
you're effectively effectively harming people. So is those kind of complexities he didn't quite get into, right? The idea that so many of us are totally dependent, for example, on the machine that produces um that extracts and burns fossil fuels, right? For keeping our houses heated, cooled, electrified. So many of us are dependent on the industrial machine system that um, is necessary for mass production of food and industrial agriculture. So, you know, the, this, uh, the question is, <clears throat> Uh, is the question that McRae had, I think it's a question that we should all be asking ourselves, is this, can we make industrial civilization green? Can we make it earth-friendly? Can we make it sustainable? And never mind this nonsense phrase, saving the planet, which everyone uses. You used it earlier. This isn't about saving the planet. The planet will be fine. It's about saving a way of life. And that way of life is the industrial way of life. Now, can we make that way of life uh, ecologically sane? And I believe, along with McRae, that we cannot, that we will never make machine industrial civilization um, a, a sustainable enterprise. It will always involve widespread destruction, of wildlife, habitat, ecosystems, the fouling of air, water, the toxification of everything as we are now seeing with microplastics in just about everything, water, food, dust. Um, so then you're left with, wow, this whole civilization is a relentlessly destructive enterprise that's toxifying everything. What do I do? And therein lies the rub, as Hamlet would say. What do you do under those circumstances? So McRae took up a rifle and started shooting at electrical substations. To what effect? Nil. He changed absolutely nothing. He caused some, yeah, he caused some, some, financial suffering for utilities and for some of the um, uh, enterprises that depended on the flow of electricity from those particular substations. But ultimately, the machine marched on and there was, you know, very little consequence to his actions. Nonetheless, we are still left with, left with the question, what do we do about the monstrous system of machines in which we are embedded and on which we are totally dependent at this point. You were saying the impact of his eco-sabotage, if you will, was basically nil. Were you surprised that you were being recorded along with McRae? And do you think that the government views him as a threat to that threat of a to a, the way of life that we have that the mega machine causes is he despite the fact that his impact of his actions was nil is he still seen 
as a threat to that machine? And were you surprised that you were being recorded? Well, first of all, yeah, I was pretty shocked I was being recorded. And uh, I'm glad that during those recordings, I was very clear with McRae when he intimated about, you know, possibly killing people, only intimated. He wasn't like, I'm going to do it. Um, you know, that he and I got into a shouting match over it. And I, at this point in, in, in our quote-unquote relationship, I had known the guy for an hour. I literally went over to a friend's house, and there he was. The friend turned out to be an informant working for the FBI, unbeknownst to me. And um, and this this friend was the, his name was Mark Austin, had uh, facilitated the recording of that conversation that evening. Um, and so during that four hours, five hours that McRae and Austin and I and other parties who were present at this, it was sort of sort of became a dinner party. Um, during that conversation, you know, McRae and I, as I described, descended into, into screaming at each other. And again, remember the context. I barely know this person. I've just met him that evening. We're getting drunk. He's saying some stuff that I agree with regarding the mega machine, regarding industrial civilization. He's also saying some stuff that I find heinous, which is that, hey, maybe, maybe you know, in, in, in rising up against the mega machine, some people have to die. And I found, I found that totally unacceptable. So I'm glad the FBI could hear that I'm not totally supportive of this guy. On the other hand, uh, that he was viewed as a threat um, is reasonable from the perspective of the police state, the surveillance state, the capitalist state, right? Who do all those powers serve? They serve money. They serve oligarchy. They serve all the interests that benefit from the constant expansionist growth of the industrial system, of the capitalist industrial system. So anybody who even hints at um, standing up to that system will be viewed as a threat and must be taken down. Was Mark uh, Austin, were you upset with him inviting you to meet uh, McRae? Were you, did you feel in any way betrayed? Uh, why would, you know, I guess in retrospect, why do you think he invited you? Oh, wait, no. So the, the, in the story, I make it clear, he didn't invite me. That evening, I was driving into this little village where I was living, Escalante, Utah, town of 300 people, way out in the middle of nowhere in the desert where herds of wild animals will pass through on occasion. And on this evening, I was motoring through town in my crappy old car and uh, passed a, a, a herd of deer on a knoll and then a buck from that uh, herd decided to attack the car <laughs> and shattered out the, the, the rear driver's, the driver's side window. I'm in the car. Glass shatters all over the place. At first, I don't know what the hell has happened. Um, I thought someone was shooting at us. My girlfriend and I were pretty spooked. We ended up driving to Austin's place. He took a look inside the car. I had a flashlight. And he said, oh, look, there's blood and there's deer hair. And then we figured it out. This buck had attacked the car. Well, what happened with the buck? The buck had seen his reflection in the in the the window of the vehicle, and bucks at that that's during the rut. This is October. This is October, right? Or no, yeah, it was October. Um, the uh, bucks do not like any other bucks coming near their their harem, and so he attacked the car, 
thinking it was another buck. Point is, we weren't invited. We stopped by there after thinking we were under attack or something. Then we figured it out. And then Austin was like, well, come in for a drink. I've got a friend here. And, um, and yeah, was I, was I pissed off? Well, think about it is no, I wasn't pissed off because I got a great story out of it. <laughs> so I wasn't pissed off. Um, I, I guess the, the thing that does piss me off is that, um, McCray shouldn't have been so quick to reveal himself. He should have been more careful. And I think the reason that, again, remember the context here, this deer attacks my car. I go to Mark Austin's house and with my girlfriend, we walk in, McCray is meeting us for the first time. There's another person there, publisher of a local newspaper. We start to get drunk. We start to get into arguments about industrial civilization. And very quickly, McCray is talking about extreme, he's, 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 he's sharing extremist rhetoric and he's talking about extreme acts. And I'm thinking to myself, well, look, I've interviewed and personally known former ELF, Earth Liberation Front, and ALF, Animal Liberation Front, um, so-called eco-terrorists. And by the way, they're not terrorists because they don't, they don't harm, they didn't harm anybody, right? That is ALF and ELF folks. And one of the, the, the rules in that world is silence. You do not talk about anything you've done. You maintain absolute silence about whatever acts of sabotage you've committed. Well, this guy did exactly the opposite. He's just, you know, jabbering and jabbering away. And, and as I described it in the, uh, in the uh, transcript, I tell him, look, the fact that you are bloviating like this makes me think it's all a bunch of lies. Because if you really did commit these acts, you'd keep quiet about it. You wouldn't talk. Now, later, as I got to know McCray, I realized that what he really needed, wanted, was recognition. Someone to recognize that he was doing something valid in the world and meaningful. And that's why he was talking so much about it. Um, but to your question about Austin, no, I didn't mind. If I ended up like doing six years in federal prison, then I would mind. <laughs> <laughs> I would mind very much. Um, McCray minded. Let me tell you, McCray hates Austin. Hates him, and for good reason. Because six years in federal prison in the hellhole where where McCray was placed, the um, medium security prison at Florence, which is right across from the Supermax at Florence, where you know Ted Kaczynski is housed and um, other terrorists are housed. That was not easy time. McCray suffered badly. So th that's the thing about uh, McCray. He wants recognition for something, for an act that needs to go unrecognized. So did, did Austin tell you why he did roll on McCray? Why did he become a whistleblower for the FBI? Uh, because he believed that McCray was going to commit acts that would harm people. That's what he believed. Uh, even though, even though in the transcripts that I read, McCray repeatedly said that he, his intention was not to harm people. On the other hand, 
McRae shared with Austin plans to take out a um, a key uh, electrical substation near Moapa, Nevada, the loss of which could possibly plunge Las Vegas and parts of Southern California into darkness for days or weeks or even months if there was a cascading effect from taking out this one um, substation. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that was McCray. McCray had done a whole bunch of research on the um, sort of Keystone substations in the Southwest, and this was one of them, according to him. Um, and so Austin, when I talked to him, right, explained that this prospect of putting Las Vegas in the darkness for weeks or months uh, would necessarily result in the deaths of innocents. I don't know, people on ventilators in hospitals or people dependent on refrigerated medicine and so on and so forth. And that to him was uh, unconscionable. Did McRae, at least to you, and even maybe you had a discussion with Austin about this, did McRae seem capable of what he claimed he could do? Uh, you mean capable of using a rifle to shoot out a substation that would cause a cascading blackout? Yes. Um, would that particular substation lead to a cascading blackout? I don't know. He asserted that it would. But he was definitely, yes, I mean, he, he shot out four substations that we know of in southern Utah, two in southern Utah and two in Nevada. Is McRae a, Lud, a Luddite, someone who is opposed to new technology, or is he someone who is opposed to only certain new technologies? Is he the kind of person who wants to go back to the land? Uh you know, he, he emails me. Now, he's out of prison, so I guess he's not that much of a Luddite, <laughs> right? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I, I mean, does the guy grow his own food and farm? No, uh, I don't think he ever has. Uh, I think he's more angry at the status quo, but doesn't really have a coherent vision of what kind of society replaces the status quo, right? So we can agree that, or he and I rather, can agree that, well, industrial civilization will never be made green. It's never going to be made sustainable. But what do you replace it with? How do you feed eight and a half, nine billion people? How do you house them? How do you heat their homes? How do you cool their homes? How do you, how do you, I don't know, manufacture the clothing and shoes that they need or want. How do you do all that? I don't know. I don't have answers. And but I do know, I do know that the current, the system as it stands, right, is a nightmare for Mother Earth and, uh, and a, a, a force of toxification and pollution and and um, desertification and all the awful things that we see unfolding as quote unquote progress marches on. Did do you ever see this as McRae 
acting individually about individual harms that had been done to him as kind of an act of revenge. Because you write, McRae had once been a successful entrepreneur, the head of a high-end carpentry business in Dallas that catered to wealthy clients and bought him a six-figure income. At the height of his success, he oversaw 10 journeymen, but the 2008 financial crash killed the business. Now he no longer had a cell phone, credit card, bank account, lived hand-to-mouth, working odd jobs. He'd been married and loved his wife, a backpacker like him, smitten with wild places, but she was long gone like everything else that had ever been stable and orderly in his life. Did you ever get a sense from him that he wasn't trying to do, you know, he was trying to do a collective good, sure, by taking out the mega machine, but it, that it in any way was driven by a sense of individual revenge for a system that had wronged him? I think that absolutely is part of it. Absolutely. Yes, we're. I mean, look, as individuals, we're not some some uh, uh, you know automaton operating in a vacuum. All our behaviors, yes, are driven by personal experience. And so the the long shadow of the past is always always altering the course of our futures. So yeah, totally, that had an effect on it. Was it the primary motivation? Mm, I don't think so. But it was definitely part of it when you lose your house and your business and your wife gets cancer and you take care of her and then they split up. Uh, and you're alone, effectively homeless. Yeah, that could change your perspective for sure. On the other hand, he told me that that there was a certain liberation in all that. And he willingly, and this was an edit, by the way, on the part of the, the Harper's editors, where I was like, hey, that's not exactly what I meant to say, but I let it go. He chose to drop his cell phone and his credit cards and uh, and live as far as possible outside that aspect of the machine, or the aspect of the, the, you know, we carry around these cell phones, while they're effectively surveillance and tracking devices, we make purchases with credit cards. They're effectively tracking devices um, and record, uh, a form of electronic record keeping of our, our daily lives, right? What we purchase reflects us. Um, so he made choices to, to get that stuff out of his life and it, in no small part because he wanted to leave no trace of his um his whereabouts as he went on this mission of destroying industrial infrastructure so if he avoided traffic cameras in cities and made all payments in cash and had no cell phone he was effectively outside the the panopticon of the machine. We are speaking with journalist and author Christopher Ketchum, who wrote the Harper's Magazine article, The Machine Breaker, Inside the Mind of an Eco-Terrorist. Christopher writes at Denatured, his journalism not-for-profit. You can find Denatured and support Chris's work at ChristopherKetchum.com, and you can follow Christopher on Twitter at C. Ketchum Wild, you write that measured against the march of machine civilization, the history of ecological sabotage has been one of petty local victories, scorched earth retreats, and ultimately abject failure. 
The movement dates the 70s when Edward Abbey's fictional monkey wrench gang inspired a generation of young Americans to coalesce into the direct action group Earth First. And on our most recent Patreon podcast, we had an interview with Daryl Cherney from Earth First that we originally uh, played back in 2003. So if this approach doesn't work, if this leads to abject failures, then why does this inspire a continuation of the movement? Why not approach it differently and not individually? Or is that just simply impossible? Is the only way to be a so-called monkey wrencher to be by yourself or in the smallest of groups because of heavy surveillance from law enforcement makes it impossible to work effectively and collectively and organize. Is there any way that they can ditch this paradigm of only being individuals who are supposed to be learning from one another, but it seems like there's very little institutional memory? Right. Well, there isn't. Um, no, I don't think you can effectively conduct eco-sabotage in large groups. The, the people leak like sieves. They talk just like McCray did. <laughs> Um, and uh, and then you go to jail. So, no, I mean, if you're going to commit eco-sabotage, do it on your own or do it in a, with an extremely trusted friend um, or maybe two friends. Um, why do people continue to turn to it? Because they see that protest against the system, peaceful protest against the system isn't working. Things are worse than ever ecologically and environmentally. In 1988, James Hansen goes before Congress and warns us, hey, carbon emissions are going to produce heating of the atmosphere and the planet, which will then produce catastrophic consequences for humankind. What happened? Well, we double, we just, we went haywire with carbon emissions. They're more than ever. <laughs> we added, what, 120 million, uh, 120 yeah, parts per million. I mean, just the, the 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 level of carbon emissions skyrocketed thereafter. There's no sign that we're going to reduce carbon emissions on the horizon. There's no sign that we're going to reduce digging out of fossil fuels and drilling for oil and gas. Uh, there's no sign that we are going to um, uh, meet the requirements of the... Um, Paris Agreement on reducing emissions so that uh, average planetary temperatures stay below a 1.5 Celsius warming above pre-industrial. Um, between 1970 and present, I think we've lost something like 70% of all vertebrate biomass. It's just been wiped out. Um, there's an ongoing Six extinction um, that is basically a catastrophe for all our um, non-human brothers and sisters out there in the wild. Uh, so when you look at these facts, you say to yourself, hey, uh, <laughs> am, I, am I going and marching in the street saying, stop climate warming? Well, it has... It's had no effect, not changing a goddamn thing. So you begin to get more extreme ideas in your head. So I think that's a that's a a, a driving factor. The the ineffectiveness of protest to date to change the course of industrial civilization. 
And now there's breaking news today out of uh, Politico.au that the UAE was going to use COP28, which they are hosting this year. They're going to be using it as a cover for making oil and gas deals. So it's not like those negotiations are helping either. You write the growing understanding of eco-sabotage as a serious endeavor coincided with an era of expansive plunder and spoliation, uh, referred to by some historians as the Great Acceleration, a period in which human enterprise under capitalism kicked into overdrive, taxing the earth in unprecedented ways. Almost every measure of ecological health suggested decline. The problem was the seeming inevitability of the juggernaut, the constancy of its forward motion and the inefficacy of mere individuals in the face of such odds. Did the Great Acceleration also then lead to a great acceleration when it came to crackdowns, not only on eco-sabotage, but all forms of environmental-related protests, especially against infrastructure like pipe like pipelines did the great acceleration lead to a great acceleration in environmental protest crackdowns well first of all let's talk about the great acceleration just let's um, frame it in terms of fossil fuels so between 1990 and present 30 years more than 30 years more than half of all fossil fuels ever burned in history were burned it's the last 30 years that's the great acceleration Humanity massively increased its ecological and materials footprint so that we're using more um, uh, tons per person per capita um, to produce a a unit of GDP. Um, We have, as I mentioned earlier, just decimated wildlife and habitat um and so that great acceleration has also produced lots of billionaires right millionaires and and it has uh lifted up the middle class uh in the global south primarily in china so there are many many vested interests in maintaining it So what do those vested interests do? Yes, they make it more and more difficult for dissenters from the machine system <clears throat> to make themselves heard. So, for example, I've covered, um, quote-unquote, animal enterprise terrorism, which is when you interfere or sabotage, interfere with or sabotage any facility that involves animals, whether it be uh, production of fur or testing, uh, animal testing for, you know, uh, um, hair care products or whatever it might be, or facilities that, that, uh, meat, uh, meat slaughterhouses, et cetera, et cetera. So with the passage of the animal enterprise terrorism act, I believe it was 2006, Suddenly, forms of protest regarding animal enterprise, just protests, right, were now labeled terroristic. Uh, In the UK, recently, protesters have been given incredible sentences for blockading traffic uh, in London. These are Extinction Rebellion protesters. They're serving two-year, three-year sentences 
One of them is a German citizen who will likely be deported. So yeah, the system is coming down hard on those brave few souls who <clears throat> decide to stand up against it. You mentioned that given these trends, it's unsurprising that the movement would turn to catastrophism. At the vanguard of the shift was a group called Deep Green Resistance, the brainchild of the authors Derek Jensen, Lear Keith, and Eric McBay, self-described eco-philosophers and activists who had published numerous books of uh, remonstrance against industrial society. The three asserted that our civilization was untenable and would render the earth uninhabitable. Jensen, in particular, exhorted his readers to put our bodies and our lives between the industrial system and life on this planet. We must start to fight back. Uh, Jensen believed that those who come after, who inherit whatever is left of the world once this culture has been stopped, are going to judge us by the health of the land base, by what we leave behind. They're not going to care how you or I lived our lives. They're not going to care how hard we tried. They're not going to care whether we were nice people. Now, I would argue that has not happened because on the show, every time we ask a post-baby boomer if they ever hold previous generations responsible for what they've left behind... They say no, and they don't blame their parents or grandparents. It's not seen as any individual's fault, parents or grandparents, but the system we live within. Can we hold that system accountable when we see previous generations as nice people doing the best they could? Well, I mean, the, the generation it's, it's, uh, uh, that will grow up, that are, let's say, children now, and that will be mature adults 20, 30 years from now, they're going to look back on us, you and I, buddy, and say that we messed up big time. Uh, I think because we're at a pivot point in history where radical change is absolutely necessary and we're not making it. We being the collectivity of the human race. Uh, as for the baby boomers, talk about a loathsome generation. Talk about a generation that that uh, played with fire, that had uh, so many chances to really alter the system, but instead bought into it and profited and enjoyed primarily the great acceleration. It was the baby boomers who, who profited from and oversaw the great acceleration. Um, of course, it's not all the baby boomers, but that is a generation that to me is loathsome for, uh, for having sold out. And guess what? We're selling out too. So <laughs> there it goes. And yeah, you know, systems, uh, systems are e enormous, intractable, complex juggernauts. And individuals often mean nothing um, inside that that enormous complex system. On the other hand, the functioning, the greasing of the facilitation of the machine system necessitates a whole lot of individuals working together. You know, uh, McCray talked about how living on the machine is like living on the Death Star, you know, Star Wars. Um, life on the Death Star is great. 
you get uh you know streaming connectivity you get hulu and netflix you get strawberries in winter you can fly anywhere you want anytime for vacation you uh you have uh just in time delivery from amazon uh but wherever the death star goes it's destroying planets <laughs> and but at the same time you can make really good money working on maintaining the death star you know join a hedge fund trade on wall street work for the military industrial complex and so on or work for hey work in marketing and advertising i know journalists who've given up this rotten game of journalism and gone into advertising make a lot of money serve the death star on that serving of the death star i i just kept thinking of wait, what is that uh i have it written down here somewhere the upton sinclair quote about uh you're depending on uh the amount uh, you are willing to rise up against the system depends on how much you are getting paid or how much your job no, depends. No, it's difficult. The, the quote is, it's difficult to make a man understand something if his salary depends and is not understanding it. That is exactly that's, what That's exactly yes. what it is. And so, so do you think that is at what is at the heart of McRae's analysis when it comes to fighting the Death Star, fighting the mega machine? That is what is at the heart of it, that we depend upon the machine so much that is destroying ourselves absolutely absolutely and so we <laughs> we want to we want to see that money in our bank account keep on rising we are most definitely not going to understand that the machine that makes the money in the bank account go up is killing the world and ultimately will destroy us because without a functioning biosphere, without a functioning cryosphere, without functioning interlocking um, earth systems, there is no civilization. There is no food. There's no arable soil. There's a planet of ashes and a lot of dead bodies. But for now, <laughs> we're making money. I mean, it's like hey, there's a great there's a cartoon I have on my website where it shows a, 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 a apocalyptic landscape and a um, son and father sitting around a fire, and the son asks, "What's to eat?" And he goes, "I don't know, but we made a lot of money." <laughs> yeah, that quote is: "It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his uh, salary depends upon him his not understanding it." How much do you think our economic our economic system, the way it functions today, how much do you think that depends upon? How much do you think it's functioning depends on us not understanding how it works? Well, that's what I was just saying. It, it, I think it's enormous, enormously important for us to not think about how the system actually functions it's a uh, uh, learned mindlessness uh it's like you know it's like eating industrial food you know as long as you you're mindless about it mindless and thoughtless and robotic you don't think about the slaughterhouses or the hormones or the pesticides or the poisons that go into the the the, the meat or the 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 um toxins on your apple right that keep off the pests so that your apple is shiny and perfect. 
you, you don't think about these things. You can't think about them because the more you think about them, the more either enraged you will become. Maybe you'll pick up your rifle or paralyzed and impotent you will feel or something in between, but you will certainly be disconcerted to put it lightly. If you, if you begin to think about how the machine actually operates, what its effects are, what its effects are on ecosystems, what its effects are on, on human well-being and health and our societies. Um, so learned mindlessness, a, a purposeful not understanding of how things really work is essential, I believe, to the functioning of the uh, industrial system. You write that when three separate psychiatrists working with the U.S. Bureau of Prisons examined McRae in the years following his arrest, one concluded that he was not fit to stand trial, and another uh, questioned his fitness. McRae showed psychotic symptoms, including thought disorganization and preoccupying persecutory uh, delusions, along with depressive symptoms meeting criteria for a major depressive episode. He also displayed symptoms of mania. The psychiatrist believed that he may have been had a bipolar disorder, possibly schizophrenic, uh, schizoaffective disorder, and also narcissistic personality disorder, which makes him difficult to work with. In the short time you did speak with him, did you ever get the sense he was suffering from these kinds of disorders? Well, it wasn't a short time. Remember, I, I got to know him before his arrest on October 7th. I met him for the first time. He was arrested on November 2nd. This is in 2016. And thereafter, he and I spent, um, you know, up to his release last year, you know, all that time. It's six years almost corresponding. And I'm still corresponding with him. I talk with him regularly. Um, he lives in a little cabin down in uh, in the wilderness of southwestern New Mexico. Um, was he crazy? I think so, in part, and yet totally sane. That is, I think that, I think that his unlearning of mindlessness drove him a little crazy because he started thinking really deeply about his embeddedness in the industrial system and what, what that means. He started thinking really deeply about um, his complicity in an extremely destructive enterprise. And he felt very deeply with a profound emotion about seeing ecosystems especially in the American West, that he loved being altered negatively by climate change, by road building, oil and gas drilling, mining for gold, overgrazing by livestock, and so on and so forth. All the glorious stuff of the mega machine, right? We want our landscapes to be productive. Ergo, we will subjugate them with our machines to make money. Seeing that broke his heart. For example, seeing gold across Nevada. You know, I'll just tell you a personal story here. 
I've spent a lot of time in Nevada with um, wild horse activists and and have been told now and seen with my own eyes how so many of the really wild remote landscapes in Nevada are being roaded. That is, roads are being built into them. Once you build roads into places, that's it. Your wildlife is, it will collapse because wildlife hate roads. They get killed on roads. They hear noise on roads. They see lights on roads. The big machines travel on roads and then come in and build gigantic mines that then make more noise and spread poisons. So Lecrae was seeing the same thing, just roads, just to take one example, more and more roads into the wild sagebrush steppe. And that broke his heart and that drove him a little crazy. So yeah, he was, he was uh, mentally disturbed for good reason. <laughs> See, that's the thing about it. He was disturbed for good reason. You write the psychologists have come up with a term, solastalgia, for the feeling that occurs with the disappearance of what's perceived as the normal, stable, healthy, natural world. The Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht, who coined the term, identifies it as a suffering at the loss of solace, a deep emotional response to the desolation of a loved home environment. The condition of solastalgia then is primarily one of grief environmental grief, mourning for the death of home, which is the place of solace, Albrecht tells you. Stephen McRae seems to be a man who refused to ignore such an emotion. Do you think that in a world of worsening climate change, will solastalgia become a global mental health epidemic? Was was McRae a canary in the coal mine? Absolutely. I think that as more and more ecological destruction occurs, as our as our home environments are altered negatively, um, with ramifying impacts on on how we live our lives and how we relate to the natural world, um, how we relate also to the built environment, which will come under increased threat um, by uh, climate disorder. Yes, I think solastalgia will become a widespread uh, mental disorder. And maybe let's not call it a mental disorder. Let's call it a, a, a almost like a, 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 a necessary psychological adaptation. That is, to see our home environment wrecked we are uh if we don't react it would make us less than human right we, we would lose a part of our humanity by simply shrugging that off so yeah i think soul nostalgia is going to be widespread i know it was a driving factor in, in um, mccray as i described you know, about his reactions to changes, environmental changes across the American West, like his his beloved terrain, the American, the arid lands of the West, the deserts and 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 uh, and high country plains and and um, the uh, Sky Island mountain ranges, etc. I know I suffer from solastalgia. 
Did I see the same changes? Um, why have I not picked up my rifle? I don't know. I've got to answer that question. <laughs> so do you think that solastalgia then is what is driving our epidemic of loneliness and depression? Do you think that it is the this this epidemic, quote unquote, epidemic of loneliness and depression? Do you think that is the correct response that humans should have to climate change? Well, I don't look, man. I mean, the, the epidemic of loneliness and depression is a is a, the result of many, many, many factors, including not least the horrific screens that we're staring at all day long and that isolate us further while purporting to connect us to the world. Social media, incredibly destructive, toxic for for certain individuals. Um, it's the nature of the capitalist system of uh, wanting to get over on others and make more money and be quote unquote better uh, in the marketplace. Uh, I mean, uh, a society that does not value citizens, but values consumers and on and on. We could talk about what's driving loneliness and depression. I think one factor among the many factors is yes, environmental degradation. We have been speaking with journalist and author Christopher Ketchum, who wrote the Harper's Magazine article, The Machine Breaker, Inside the Mind of an Eco-Terrorist. And a recent past guest on our show, George Monbiot, recently uh, suggested and linked to Chris's writing on Gaza. Where was that, Chris? On Gaza? No, no. uh, He was uh, linking to a piece that I wrote about... um, it was in the intercept about uh william nordhaus that's what it was i'm sorry climate a climate economist and um i did a uh investigation of nordhaus's work and found that it was a uh basically a series of frauds of um in, in terms of nordhaus's analysis of what the global effects of climate change are going to be nordhaus purports that well, there'll be minor reductions of GDP at two degrees Celsius, some further reductions of global GDP at three degrees Celsius. Meanwhile, you talk to climate scientists, they say three degrees Celsius is hell on earth. That's an apocalyptic scenario of total disruption of industrial civilization. And you're talking about a what a a six percent, this is Nordhaus. You're talking about a six percent reduction in GDP. How about like seventy percent reduction? Um, and and who cares about GDP at that point? Because we're talking about the lives of billions of of people. So yeah. Anyways, Mambiat linked to to my piece. Yeah, I I, uh, I just couldn't remember what it was about. So thank you very much because people should be checking out your writing at the Intercept as well. Uh, you can follow Chris at on Twitter at C Ketchum Wild and Christopher writes at Denatured, his journalism not for profit. You can find Denatured and support Chris's writing at ChristopherKetchum.com. One last question for you, Chris, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, consider Kim Stanley Robinson's 2020 novel, The Ministry for the Future, in which a character clubs to death a wealthy man 
on a beach off of Lake Maggiore and gets away with it. His murderous rage driven by having witnessed a heat wave in India that killed more people than in the entirety of the First World War. The book spans decades of climactic unraveling to chronicle the rise of the children of Kali, a cabal that kills thousands of innocent people on crash day sometime in the 2030s by flying drones into the engines of dozens of commercial airliners. It's a ruthless act of terrorism that Robinson, Robinson's omniscient, omniscient sorry, uh, narrator celebrates for causing the end of global aviation as we know it. No literary justice here. The saboteurs live on to fight another day unpunished. You add, here is a novelist of no small renown. Barack Obama has endorsed Robinson's book, who envisions an effective sabotage campaign by cells that operate in large numbers, coordinate on a global scale, and act with fanatical devotion and a code of absolute secrecy. Robinson writes, the war for the earth is often said to have begun on crash day. A war for the earth provoked by the end of aviation. Are we so dependent on the mega machine that when it does crash, Chris, there will be, as Robinson describes it, the war for the earth? Is that an inevitability? Uh, well, I think the war for the earth that he's describing there is is the, the that of um, dissenters, dissidents, saboteurs, and ultimately terrorists against the carbon machine primarily, right? So that was a, a war to liberate Earth from carbon emissions. Uh, I think that um, I think that his scenario is absolutely fantastical. It's fiction after all. So he's at liberty to produce such fantasies. Uh, I think most likely reading the course of history and looking at our current trajectory, the mega machine will chug on and on and on as far as it can go, exploiting as many resources as possible, laying waste to much of planet Earth, uh, continuing to grow the human population, uh, continuing to expand uh, as much as possible GDP until it hits a wall, the limits to growth. And when it hits the limits to growth, it will collapse and slowly unravel, causing immense pain and suffering. That's what I think is going to happen. On that happy note, Chris, it's been a great 2023 having you on the show three times in one year. That very rarely happens to have a guest on three times in the same year. Thank you so much for being back on our show this year. Really appreciate it. And our listeners really enjoyed your uh, con- our conversation about luxury emissions, and that's probably going to make it on our Best of 2023 series. So thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate the support. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. If from our conversation with Christopher Ketchum, you now have a different understanding of what eco-terrorism is and why some engage in such acts, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, sometimes there's a headline in the New York Times that is so annoying, you just cannot read the article beneath. The assumptions the story's title makes, the sweeping generalizations or simplistic cliches that reinforce the status quo, are just so infuriating. You find yourself rolling your eyes or shaking your head. 
and then turning away from the paper and trying to find a better story. Then there's the headlines that are just so god-awful. You gotta read the stories. Like gapers instinctively slowing down near a traffic accident. And for me, that article was TikTok videos show despair over economy with the accompanying sub-headline, Plight of Gen Z spoils... Sorry. Plight of Gen Z spells trouble for Biden. Sorry, I told you I have a cold. So, yes, according to the Times, Gen Z is unhappy. And all the Times can think about is, how does this affect President Biden's re-election chances? Definitely not. How can we help address the mental health crisis among people aged 11 to 26 years old? That's not the story here. Your concern about depression amongst Gen Z is that it might affect President Biden's re-election chances, not their mental health. And that says a lot about our times, as well as the New York Times. Also on Patreon, as we had already booked Chris Ketchum to be on today's show to talk about so-called eco-terrorism, we played our June 12, 2002 conversation with... Daryl Cherney, who along with fellow Earth First member Judy Barry, were injured in a 1990 car bomb explosion. Daryl and the late Ms. Barry, who later died of unrelated causes, were exonerated of any wrongdoing of which they had been accused. However, six of the seven FBI agents and Oakland police involved in their arrest were found to have violated the activists' First and Fourth Amendment rights by arresting the activists conducting searches of their homes, carrying out a smear campaign in the press by calling Earth First a terrorist organization and calling the activists bombers in the aftermath of the explosion because that's how propaganda works. But the only way you can hear me going off about the New York Times and a conversation with a so-called eco-terrorist is by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. By doing so, you also get a special secret code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com. You can get a discount code word. And when you uh, go to thisishell.com and you click on support, you uh, get all of our stuff for $5 off its listed price. You also get a sneak peek at every week's question from hell. And you can ask a question from hell. Of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Patreon podcast host, Chuck Mertz. And on our most recent Patreon podca- podcast, the question from hell for me that was submitted by a Patreon patron was submitted by Nasrafej. Nasrafej, or Jefferson's Jefferson Backwards, asked me if you had to take in a wild animal as a house guest for a year what animal would you choose? To which I answered, the only wild animal I've ever slept with. However, to hear my answer, you must subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon. Is it worth it just to hear the story of me sleeping with a wild animal? Well, listener Hugh commented at Patreon after listening to that Patreon monologue, Chuck's answer to the question from hell was absolutely wild, pardon the pun. I had the same reaction as Will did when listening, and that reaction was, 
Will saying, what? That's This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Chris, remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, what are you not looking forward to this holiday season? And right now, what we have here from Discord, we got a couple of answers. One comes from Mark. Uh, their answer is Nikki Haley's responsible Republican Christmas pageant. <laughs> I wouldn't look forward to that either. And then uh, there's Kim who wrote the heaps of sparkling garbage and musical earworms. Ugh. The musical earworms are really annoying, especially when you don't know where the music came from. Like you go into a pharmacy and all of a sudden you got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in your head and you have no idea why it happened. That's really creepy. Do we have any on uh, Patreon you want to yes, share? Yes, there's a couple on Patreon as well. Uh, Public Universal Comrade wrote, The Holidays. <laughs> That's it. That's all you have to worry about. <laughs> and uh, also Jeffrey wrote, Fighting Under the Mistletoe. <laughs> Okay. That's all we got for the time being. <laughs> all right. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And remember, if you are a Patreon member, you do get $5 off each and every piece of merchandise when you get your special secret code word that you can only get by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You can share your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it in our Discord community or at our Patreon page. And you can also email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. And now... Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. Yes, hello. Oh, hello. We didn't hear your intro music. I don't know how that happened. Doesn't matter. I'm just it's the best waiting for it. It's, okay. Yeah. No, let's let's, let's go. Just move uh, forward. <laughs> the past inside the present. <laughs> there we go. Uh a term that pops up pretty frequently when talking about the state of Israel as well as the state of Israel is settler colonialism. Israel is a settler colonial society, or it is absolutely not a settler colonial society, depending on who you talk to. Today, I want to take a break from talking about the history of Zionism as such and take a little detour to talk about what's up with this settler colonialism business, what the term means, and some examples of the concept, uh, and then finally take a look at whether or not Israel can legitimately be called a settler society or not. The term itself uh, originates from the field of indigenous studies and was first coined in uh, the 1960s. And then 30 years later, by the 1990s, historians, sociologists, and adjacent humanist scholars around the world began to establish settler colonial studies as a distinct field. 
especially scholars from Australia, were influential in establishing and defining the term and pushing the pursuit of settler colonial studies as a distinct mode of inquiry. The field features historians of colonialism, of indigenous peoples, but also historians who focus on genocide. Lorenzo Veranzini, uh, who teaches at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, for example, uh, was one of the most or is one of the most influential scholars to firmly establish the term and the field itself. He is uh, the editor of an uh, editor in chief of the journal Settler Colonial Studies. But what is this thing now? How does it differentiate itself from plain old, quote unquote, just colonialism as uh, a plain old normal colony generally operates in a way that a colonizing power inserts itself into a foreign land by replacing the political leadership either directly or indirectly and then running this land in a way that it extracts resources or products from the land to benefit the imperial center in which the coloni from which the colonizers came. A plain old colony exploits the labor and the resources of the colonized people and ships the things produced from uh, these or produced by these colonized people back home. Meanwhile, the colony can also serve as a secondary market for products made in the imperial center. British India operated largely like that. The Belgian Congo operated largely like that. A settler colony does things very differently. Instead of replacing the political leadership of a colonized people, a settler colony wholesale replaces the colonized people with settlers from the imperial center. Usually, settler colonial projects uh, conceive of their target areas as lands without people, without civilization, uh, so-called terra nullius, an earth without things on it, uh, blank slates, so to speak. The people indigenous to the the areas chosen for settler colonial projects don't count as people to the colonizers and are seen as not having sufficient claim to the lands that they have inhabited since time immemorial. Instead of exploiting the labor of a colonized population by replacing the political leadership structure, a settler colonial project directly exploits the land by opening it up for settlement by an outside population. In the process, the indigenous population is pushed out of their own lands and replaced with settlers. And this is where the settler colonial project becomes genocidal because in the way Raphael Lemkin, uh, the guy who I talked about a couple of weeks ago who defined the term genocide and how Lemkin defines genocide, um, in this way, taking a population's land away and forcefully resettling a people is an act of genocide. And that is regardless uh, whether or not these displaced people then afterwards die off or not. That is irrelevant to determine the genocidalness, but that's just an aside. Oftentimes, the products of a settler colony are then also shipped back to the imperial center, but settler colonies more so than regular colonies function as an additional market for the imperial center to sell goods to. Settler societies functioned in many ways as a reproduction of the imperial center society through long-range migration, as a New Zealand historian James Bellick put it. 
As I said, the indigenous population of the lands are usually regarded by a settler project as lesser, as often not really human. They lack refinement and civilization. They are seen as not really doing agriculture, as not utilizing the land in the same efficient way that the settlers do. Their lack of humanity, their lack of productivity, and their lack of civilization serve as justification for taking these lands away. They can go and be inhuman and unproductive elsewhere. And if they resist, well, the settler project is usually the one that's better armed than the indigenous. In the case of many earlier settler societies, diseases also played a big role in removing the indigenous, but that's another story since those diseases, most of the time at least, were not intentionally introduced. Examples of settler colonial projects exist aplenty. If you live anywhere on Turtle Island, the indigenous name for North America, you live in a settler colonial society, maybe with the exception of Mexico for the most part, because the Spanish largely did not engage in what we call settler colonialism. Australia also was a settler colonial project and is a settler colonial society, as was South Africa. Historically, Britain especially was the biggest source and instigator of settler colonial projects. The Anglophone people spread across the world, kicking out or kicking down indigenous folks and establishing little Britons all over the globe. And there they then multiplied and multiplied and kept the, that process going on. But it's not just the Brits who did settler colonialisms. What Nazi Germany attempted to pull off in Eastern Europe was also something that could be described as a settler colonial project, only that the Nazis did not really claim that Eastern Europe had no people in it. They were a lot more upfront about the whole making a land without people a reality than rather than just assuming that to be the case of uh, uh, from the get-go. But I digress. Taiwan, after the triumph of Mao Zedong and the flight of the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, is a settler colonial project that is decidedly non-Western, as are a couple of other societies around the globe. The United States are probably the single the biggest and most successful settler pro uh, colonial project, doubly so since the original American colonies of Britain were already a settler colony. Uh, but then after the American Revolution and American independence, the project of uh, the process of establishing settler colonies repeated itself, just that this time the imperial center was not back in Britain, but in the eastern United States. Beginning in the 1700s, the American colonists spread westward across the continent, and now we need to talk about some aspects that are particular to the American context. In the 1800s, a new element mingled with the drive to go west and replace Native Americans, and that was evangelical zeal. The American project has, since its infancy, featured some decidedly religious connotations. Basically, Americans for a long time harbored the idea that none other than God had provided the North American continent for them specifically to settle, spread over, and to exploit. Uh, that people were already living here was something the contemporaries saw as basically just a test that God had put in place to probe his chosen his chosen people's resolve. Besides, you know, Native Americans did not really count as people in these in these early Americans' eyes. In the 19th century, this notion gained new momentum as American settlers left the eastern colonies, um, or the eastern states, rather, for Oregon and California. Jacksonian Democrat newspaper man John O. Sullivan of New York coined the term Manifest Destiny in 1845 when he was writing about the settlement of Oregon Territory by American settlers. 
quote, and that claim is by the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us, unquote. Providence in this case means God, the Christian God, the Anglo-Saxon Protestant God specifically. O'Sullivan, like many of the people who adhered to the idea of manifest destiny, was an Anglo-Saxon supremacist. The Anglo-Saxons were, to him, the most refined people in the world. The reasoning behind this is a little garbled, and some aspects are just laughably wrong, but who cares about veracity when you have a continent to overspread? The idea of Anglo-Saxon supremacy was, as Reginald Horseman explains it in his book Race and Manifest Destiny, that Anglo-Saxon people were part of the Germanic people and Germanic people were already the best people in the world, but the Anglo-Saxons were the best of them all because something, something, the constant drive of the hardiest and toughest to constantly move westward and the British Isles were the most westward point in Europe, so uh, uh, the Anglo-Saxons were the most westward Germanic people, ergo the best Germanic people. They were, according to those supremacists also the least mixed of Germanic peoples, which, uh, buddy, no. Have you any idea about the history of the British Isles? <laughs> Y'all have been so thoroughly mixed, your language is basically the buy one, get one free variant of European languages. But again, I digress. So settler colonialism, to reiterate, is when a group of people violently enters a land, pushing out the indigenous population, replacing that population with outside settlers, and uh, who then reproduce their original society in that place. It will probably not come as a shock to listeners that Israel is and has for a long time been regarded as the settler colonial project. In the literature of settler colonialism, Israel features prominently and quite frequently as the prime example of a modern-day settler colonial society society that is still ongoing. This is not some far-flung extremist position that only some die-hard anti-Semites harbor either. Lorenzo Veranzini himself wrote extensively about Israel's settler colonialism, as have many other scholars that deal with the subject matter. There are, of course, some wrinkles to this. First of all, there is the claim that because Jewish people come originally from Israel, it cannot be true that Israel is doing settler colonialism because they are not outsiders. On the contrary, some people claim that, in fact, it was the Arabs who settled the Jewish lands, and in some ways Israel is a anti-colonial, decolonial project. And that is, of course, not quite right, because as we established in previous episodes, the land of Israel has never just been the land of the Jews or just the land of the Arabs. In fact, if we go to genetics, Mizrahi Jews, so Jews from the Middle East, are genetically indistinguishable from Palestinians. Both groups have a similar claim to the lands going for, going far back to basically the same time, roughly. I would say that Israel is not just a Jewish settler colonial project with all that this entails from the replacement of an at the point of settlement indigenous population with outsiders to the then following ongoing further genocidal practices. No, Israel is a project that is essentially a Jewish manifest destiny because Zionists will claim that Israel was given to the Jewish people specifically by God in the Hebrew Bible and react with religious fervor and indignation to claims to the contrary. In that, the Israeli project quite closely mirrors American expansion in the 19th century, because 19th century Anglo-Saxon boosters of Western expansion would also have reacted with a kind of religious indignation if someone challenged their claim that God had given them specifically the North American continent to do with as they pleased. 
And some might say that it can't be a settler colonial project because the people who made Israel did not recreate the culture of an imperial center because Judaism did not have an imperial center. But that too ignores much of the actual history of how Israel came to be because the people who settled Israel were largely coming from Europe and later from the United States and essentially ended up recreating something that is closer to a Western society there rather than a Middle Eastern one. Uh, but of course, that's kind of a point we can people can argue about for forever without really getting anywhere also funding for the israeli zionist project came from europe and from the u.s so we can still very much apply the settler colonial framework here and next week we will return to the hellish history of zionism and uh, look at how zionism as a concrete political project developed and uh, what role old square beard theodore herzl played in all of this Old square beard. beard. That's pretty funny. All right, uh, Sebastian, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. We will have your theme music queued up for you next time. Unless people want to hear my acapella version of it again, which is yeah, it's, it's, it's kind yeah, of good. You know, yeah, it just kind of works. All right. All right. Well, take care. Talk to you yeah, next you week. Get, you get better. Thank you. I'm struggling. Yeah. I appreciate it. All right. Take Aren't care. We all. All right, bye. So, Chris, who are our upcoming guests on this week's shows? Upcoming guests will be journalist Olivia Reggio will be on to talk about her article at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting uh, entitled Blaming Mass Shootings on Mental Illness Doesn't Address Either Issue, Rationalizing the Horrors of a Mass Shooting by Emphasizing the Perpetrator's Mental State Does Little to Address the Larger Issue. We will also have the return of regular This Is Hell contributor Brian Meir, who reports to us from Brazil. Brian is co-author of the new study, Anti-Corruption and Imperialist Imperialist Blind Spots, the Role of the United States and Brazil's Long Coup. As Brian tells us, three years in the making, this is the first peer-reviewed academic study of U.S. involvement in Operation Car Wash proving that the U.S. Department of Justice was involved in the coup as a matter of public record since 2016. Wow, and so what's uh, Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff contemplates renouncing his membership in the Homo Sapiens Club. (laughs) So thanks to Chris Kulvan for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show live streaming podcast host chuck mertz beginning monday december 4th that's next monday and running throughout all of december as well as during the first week of the new year this is how we'll be live streaming podcasting and airing the very best of 2023 as determined by the listeners and staff of this is hell Tell us what your favorite interviews were who were your favorite guests and if we play any of the conversations you pick we will thank you personally on the show. You, all you have to do is uh, send us your favorite or favorites to chuck at thisishell.com. DM us via X at This Is Hell Radio. Post it in our Discord community under our announcement in the general category. Um, mes- message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishell or leave your reply in the comments or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole, or share them with us, your favorite interviews or guests on this week this year's show share that with us via our announcement that we have posted at the patreon page we also hope to see all of you on wednesday december 20th winter solstice eve for the annual this is hell holiday office party which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours at carrie's lounge 
2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. Is your office not having a holiday office party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Does your work not have an office? Make our holiday office party yours. Don't like a lot of the people you work with, with but want to party with the friends you have made at work? Make our holiday office party your secret cool kids get together with co-workers you actually like. This is how office hours are happening this Wednesday, as they do nearly every Wednesday, including on Winter Solstice Eve during our holiday office party on Wednesday, December 20th, which I was just talking about. And they always happen at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. So this Wednesday, the temperature is supposed to be right around freezing as soon as the sun sets. So at office hours this week look for me out back around the fire pit as promised here's a bit more on my extended holiday weekend with family for the first time ever i legally bought legal weed in michigan where it's legal i'd already bought legal weed legally here in illinois for myself once before during my birthday week in early October. On Patreon, I described the whole process at the dispensary I went to here in Chicago as having the ambiance and excitement of going to a state-run facility in order to get your identification papers. In Chicago, I never saw the weed until I got home, opened the bag, took out the jars, and then broke their hard-to-open childproof seals. Inside, hiding, was my buds. In Michigan, they shoved two huge glass containers of buds right up in your face and asked which one you preferred. In Michigan, the people at the counter called themselves bud tenders, which is kind of annoying, and the bar back, if you will, was lined with jar after jar on shelf after shelf of fully visible weed. In Chicago, you stand in line in a stark room with a counter and employees in uniforms that look like they are straight out of a fast food chain. There clearly was no dress code for the bud tenders in Michigan. In Chicago, the long lines, as in multiple lines, included a cramped 5 by 15 foot waiting area where a half dozen people were jammed together in an unair conditioned lobby on a hot summer day. In Michigan, the environmentally controlled room where all the weed was was completely empty except for three workers and me. When the door opened up, the hermetically sealed door opened up to the room, I got a huge waft of weed smell. There was no smell in the Chicago dispensary. In Michigan, I got better weed at about 30% of the price I would have paid here in Chicago. Locals call the area I went to in Battle Creek, Michigan, Marijuana Mile, because they claim to have 25 dispensaries, or dispos, in a one-mile stretch. And as we left driving down Business 96, and we weren't counting, but there were at least a dozen in the couple of blocks between the place we went to and the interstate. Yes, there are too many dispos in Michigan. Yes, lots are going out of business. Yes, investing in marijuana has become penny stocks in Michigan. But the weed is better, the prices are dramatically lower, so they must be doing something right that we clearly are not in Chicago. One last thing I want to mention on today's show, 
uh, the article that Chris Ketchum was talking about that he recently posted at The Intercept is called When Idiot Savants Do Climate Economics, How an Elite Click of Math-Addled Economists Hijacked Climate Policy. Check out that article at The Intercept again. When Idiot Savants Do Climate Economics by Christopher Ketchum. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Again, thanks to Chris Coolfan for producing. Thanks to Seb Vooper for today's past Inside the Present. Pretending to know what I'm talking about, since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>